But there's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. They're, the politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They've got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They spend billions of dollars every year lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table and figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers workers, people who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your social security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club and you ain't in it. <laughs> you and I are not in the big club. And by the way, it's the same big club they used to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long beating you over the head in their media telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hard-working people. White collar, blue collar, doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. Good, honest, hard-working people continue. These are people of modest means. Continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all. At all. At all. Man. You know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. Everybody, welcome to Life and Life Only, episode 14. I'm absolutely delighted to have with me today, and I'm quoting from his website, author, investigator, journalist, and poet, Douglas Valentine. Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So I first discovered you quite recently, a couple of months ago. You were on the Media Roots podcast with Abby and Robbie Martin, 
By the way, if they ever listen to this, I think you're doing sterling work, both of you, fighting the good fight. So after that interview, that discussion you did, I immediately ordered the Phoenix program and I read it in about three weeks. And uh, I don't know how the way I could sum up my uh, experience of reading that book. It, it, it was a strange mixture of extreme bureaucracy and extreme violence. It was quite amazing. Just for the listeners, Doug, um, I was looking at your website today, douglasvalentine.com. So you've got two poetry books. You've got an action-adventure story set in Southeast Asia. You've got a book about your father's experience as a POW in World War II. You've got a book about the DEA. You've got a book about the war on drugs. And then the, the two which are perhaps most pertinent to today is the Phoenix Program, as I mentioned. And then your book, The CIA as Organized Crime. Subtitle is How Illegal Operations Corrupt America and the World. So which of those is your latest book? The CIA is Organized Crime, which is kind of a a publisher asked me to write the book. The first time a publisher ever asked me to write a book. And um, it's a compilation of a lot of things that I had done in the past, a lot of articles and a lot of interviews that I did on on podcasts and, and radio and stuff that were transcribed. So it was sort of a compilation of everything I had done, all the drug books, along with the Phoenix program and, and related subjects. Right. What I'd like to start with, as Julie Andrews said in The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning. So can you just tell me a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up? And uh, I want to kind of get into psychology because I know you have an interest in that. How did you see the world as a child? What age did you perhaps become skeptical of authority? So what would you say there? Uh, I grew up about 30 miles north of New York City, which, of course, is the center of the universe. And um, I had a Italian grandfather. My mother's father was an Ita- from an Italian family. And his grandfather had moved to the United States. And he still lived in New York City, Charlie Nuccio. And he had a contractor shop down in um, on Canal Street and helped build buildings and stuff like that. And I would go down into the city as a very young kid and spend time with him. So I got to see he loved Dixieland jazz and he would take me out to Dixieland jazz places and my mother played piano. So I came from a musical family. My father was a high school dropout, but he loved literature. And my parents would take me to the Shakespeare Festival, which was in Avon, Connecticut, as a little kid. And uh, my mother had studied at the Art Students League in New York City doing figure drawing. So I grew up in a house where people had ideas and uh, music and art. And those things helped me in a way to develop a psychological look at the world. And while I had... um, other friends, uh, I, I recently went to a 50-year high school anniversary, and that was actually oh, wow. four years ago, which tells you how old I am. <laughs> anyway, I met people at that, you know, in the course of all that, who had not evolved. They were the same people that I met. Mm-hmm. And the same people I knew when they were 17 and 18, as they were today, 50 years later. But um, in my path as a person, and whatever the unique contributing factors were to me. I wanted to develop as an individual. I looked around and I saw like my father's racism and I wanted to get over that. And I knew that I had to, you like John Lennon, well, (laughs) 
Donovan had a song, Season of the Witch, and he says you have to pick up every stitch. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I understood that. I understood what he was saying when I heard that when I was 17 years old. I had to create myself. I had to unravel everything from this little white neighborhood that I grew up in. There were 200 kids in my graduating class, and they were all white. Jews were considered an oddity. The Italians and the Catholics were second-class citizens. You know, it was a very waspy upbringing. And um, I knew that in order to understand the world, I had to get over all that, which was very unusual for anybody to do. The people that I know who grew up as Catholics are still Catholics. The wasps are still waspy. You know, it's very unusual for people to try to get over what they're taught as young people and to create themselves. But that's what a writer is supposed to do. And that's what Joseph Conrad did and the guy who wrote Call of the Wild, Jack London, uh, any great writer. And I'm not going to say I'm a great writer. I'll just say any artist does is they look around at the world and they try to deconstruct it and their self within it, and then to reconstruct themselves in a way so that they can understand what's happening in the world. And so that was uh, my life's ambition. I wanted to understand the world by creating myself. And the things I write about are sort of backhanded biographies of my own self-discovery of what's going on in the world and my own trying to reconstruct myself in my attitude the attitude that I project in the books is how I'm reconstructing myself to view what I was always interested in was what was happening behind the veil. Absolutely. Which is I get into the CIA, you know, and, and stuff like that. How is it that the heads of the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, the United States, anywhere, how do the people that are in control of those countries or are those ideologies maintain such strict control? Oh, the, the adherents, the, the people who form their flock or their the listenership to Fox News. You know, how do they make control, maintain control with such an iron grip? You can go down any news media. Uh, what are the things that are happening sociologically, psychologically behind the scenes that, that lock people into these beliefs that they can't give up and that a lot of them haven't never given up from the time they were 13 or 14 years old? They still adhere to them and are willing to fight to the death yeah. to um, preserve those beliefs. Wow. Yeah, well, you're a perfect guest for this podcast because what I'm actually trying to do is try and find a link between self-development and improving yourself and then how we view the world. Alternative media, let's call it. That's what I'm trying to really be is an alternative to the mainstream. From what you told me, you were born in the early 50s. So if I could just briefly ask you about Vietnam, if you could... Take yourself back, so you would have been 15, 16, I guess, when American ground troops went in. We always hear about Vietnam as the TV war, and that essentially the lesson that I think the authorities or the media learned from Vietnam is not to show any blood and guts on the TV. Were they showing you the truth or, or much closer than what they show now, I guess? What yeah, well, that? you know, I mean, the big example is um, Ken Burns and... Uh, the woman that he works with, sorry, her name Lynn, is... Lynn Novick. Lynn Novick. Yeah, and they do all their films together. I did not watch that series, but when it came out, I read interviews that he did about it. Mm-hmm. And I talked to a lot of people who did see it. 
And they said that uh, his thesis was that the Vietnam War was a noble cause and yeah. that he constructed 10 episodes of the history of the Vietnam War around that thesis, which is not the truth, not a correct thesis. And if you build a 10-part documentary on a, on a false premise, then nothing about that documentary is going to be accurate. All the music that he would interweave into the, the documentary, which has emotional impact, would be placed in such a way in the documentary to lead you to believe that Vietnam War was a noble cause, that he would reconstruct the history so that it would prove this thesis, even if he's presented for the, the, the sake of, you know, fairness and balance, opposing views, he is, the weight of his propaganda, of his narrative, would be weighted towards this thesis. And that is not true about the Vietnam War. Vietnam War, as far as America is concerned, begins after World War II. Indochina, which included Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, have been French colonies since the middle of the 19th century. Jesuit priests had been there since the middle of the 17th century and building up a Catholic, what they called supplatif, supplemental administration to rule their colony, the French. The English did the same thing overseas. For example, they, the, the English ruled in Burma by bringing in Indian troops to run the army and the police and things like that. And the French created their own little class of French adherents who they trained in France and educated in France and taught the French language to and, and let them rule over what they considered a peasantry, and which was 90% Buddhist. Anyway, after World War II, the United States had a decision to make. Franklin Roosevelt, who'd been the president through the Depression, had made an agreement with Stalin and with Churchill that the United States would decolonize after World War II, and that the French and the English would leave their colonies. But Roosevelt died, and Truman, who replaced Roosevelt, cut deals with the English and the French that they could recolonize the British in India and Burma and other places, uh, the Dutch in Indonesia, and the French in Indochina. So the United States made a strategic decision at the end of World War II to help the French recolonialize Indochina. And this really pissed off Vietnamese nationalists. And they organized and began an insurgency. And the best way that they were able to organize this insurgency was on principles that had been established by Mao Zedong in China, which told how to actually bureaucratize an anti-colonial insurrection. And this is communism. So the United States immediately began a propaganda campaign at the end of World, II, World War II directed against the American public that no matter how bad colonialism was, communism was worse. And here's the psychology of it that works on Americans is that the French and the English and the Dutch had Christianized the colonies and with Christianity came civilization. And so they were actually helping these countries that they colonized by lifting them out of their benighted state and, and delivering them into the hands of Jesus. And this really resonated with Americans, as did ideas of freedom and democracy, which, of course, never existed for 
large portions of the American public. The United States Army itself was segregated on World War II. Uh, the, the South remained largely segregated right up until 1964-65 when the American troops started to go into Vietnam. But it is a testament to the ability of the leadership of America, its foreign policy apparatus and its domestic religious and political apparatus that they could convince Americans that it was better to support a Catholic minority in Vietnam than it was to support a Buddhist communist majority. You know, just a really overwhelmingly successful propaganda campaign. But they, the Americans who fought in Vietnam, who Burns felt that it was his overriding responsibility to honor these people and to say that their sacrifice and blood and life was not due to a lie, that it was a noble cause, and that it was more important for him to reconfirm the propaganda that Americans have been taught all their lives. This goes back even before World War II, you know, to the beginning of American expansion overseas at the beginning of the 20th century. And so the, yeah. most of the young soldiers who went over to Vietnam believed this. And if you believe that it was a noble cause to fight communism, then it, that becomes a truth. If you're a family here in the United States and you lost a father or a son or a brother or a husband in the war, it's nearly impossible for a person to say he died for an unjust cause. Because that then diminishes the sacrifice that that person makes, and it diminishes their worth as an individual. And people can't live with that, just like the South. The southern states in the United States still venerate the Confederate flag. Even though they were fighting for slavery, hundreds of thousands of, of Southerners died fighting for that particular cause. And so the families and descendants of those people cannot say a bad word about them. Overlooking the fact that they, they fought to preserve slavery, after the war they erected statues in their honor to all these Confederate soldiers all throughout the South. And people like Donald Trump have fed on that emotional connection to dead soldiers in order to advance propaganda that is inherently false about mm-hmm. the South being a noble cause during the Civil War and about Vietnam being a noble cause uh, for American soldiers, the 58,000 who died there and, and the hundreds of thousands who were physically and mentally wounded because facing the reality of the fact that it was a, a war of oppression would undermine everybody's feelings here in the United States of self-worth. And people can't give that up. So the people in the media just constantly use the myth of the warrior hero. And once a soldier goes off overseas, well, it becomes a noble cause. And through this establishment in the United States across the board of this militaristic society, where joining the the armed forces and and doing the bidding of the American elite, whether it's true or false, sanctifies whatever a person does. And if you start chipping away at those foundational lies, you know, I mean, if you point out the contradictions, then you become a traitor, which is greater betrayal than actually seeking the truth. So all those things combined, and there's a lot of institutions in the United States that are completely dependent on the preservation and advancement of these big lies. Yeah, the point you're making about the propaganda, you're right. Once the propaganda has been established, 
essentially the people do the work for you because like you said when they're presented with the idea that all of their beliefs are i wouldn't say they're nothing or based on a lie in a sense they almost brainwash themselves to keep believing it that's why we get this idea i mean something i i come across a lot i understand that there are conspiracy theories that may not be true as in you know the moon landings and things like that but what we've got in our society now that people can't seem to understand we got to a state where anything you say that's not the mainstream line can be called a conspiracy theory and can be dismissed. So that's kind of my angle is, is what I'm trying to get people to understand. So what you're saying is once they've been brainwashed, they don't want to not believe it. So they get this cognitive dissonance. So in a sense, I think people fool themselves. I know that sounds terribly patronizing to people, but I'm afraid that's my experience. But, um, I was going to get onto Ken Burns later, but we may as well do it now. Can I just give you my experience? Because I did watch the whole thing. Let me just tell you what I and the listeners, what I thought about it. There was some good stuff in it. They did uh, mention the Pentagon Papers, of course. They mentioned Phoenix very, very briefly. But the problem is, this is the way I read it. It's almost like a trick where people will say, right, this is 18 hours. You know, this has obviously been researched for a long time. It's going to be the truth because it's 18 hours and because it's epic. But what it is, I watched the first couple of episodes and I mean, I'm not a big authority on Vietnam, but I know a reasonable amount. And it seemed like they got the French portion reasonably correct. But like you said, what happens is gradually it just becomes emotion. And what they did was they followed this fella, uh, I think his name was Mookie or something. They followed one guy and they had his family talking about, oh, he was a proud boy. And then they hear about his death, you know, and it's genuinely moving. But the point is, yes, I don't want to devalue for a second the suffering that his family and he he had. But the thing is that we've seen that, you know, you can watch Born on the Fourth of July if you want that story, you know, of the all-American boy who goes to Vietnam, is injured or, or kills people and, and then realizes the truth. I mean, we've seen that. So I think what annoyed me about Burns and, and Novik's series was the way they did that. And th there are other little things like, for example, the Viet Cong were originally the Viet Minh. And I think you've said on another podcast, the Viet Cong is basically a derogatory term that the CIA came up with. But the problem is that the narrator, Peter Coyote, is that his name? The, the guy who narrated it, he continues saying the Viet Cong. So it's Viet Cong, Viet Cong. And he keeps saying, oh, the communists. So I feel like I'm a person that I'm sure you are as well. You can kind of see through this propaganda now. And Sure. Let me just jump in. I, sure. All my life, as a writer, I have been fighting the elite that organizes our foreign policy and the messages that are delivered to people. And it doesn't matter what industry or institution you're in. At the highest levels, whether you're talking to CIA or the media or the oil industry or education, you know, in academia, these people are all in the same group. Their interests intersect at the very highest level. And that's what I've been aiming at. But at this 50-year class reunion that I went to, I met a woman who I had dated in college, and she married a Vietnam veteran. And she told me that I was an elitist because I had written books against the Vietnam War. And here I am, a person who has fought the elite all my life, but it's what you were just saying. If you say to people that your beliefs are wrong, 
then they just say, well, you're patronizing me. My beliefs aren't wrong. And the barriers immediately go up. And there is no way that you can make somebody analyze what they're doing. Or if they do for a minute, analyze it and they see that it's bad, they prefer like Kurt Vonnegut wrote about in all his books, the happy white lie. You know, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater. They're good people. You know, he went to Vietnam and he killed a whole bunch of Viet Cong. But if you got to know him, you'd know that he's really a good guy. And it's this is the same thing that you run into all the time. I mean, I met CIA officers, and I have met hundreds, who would run into the, their neighbor's house if it was on fire and rescue the dogs and cats and the family. And they would risk their life to help their neighbors. It doesn't mean that they haven't done murderous things. You've all, everybody has seen photographs of Himmler and all the Nazis with their wives and kids playing Frisbee, you know, going swimming together. It doesn't mean that if you do these horrible, terrible, commit the kind of war crimes that imperialists commit and the armed forces that serve with them commit can't be aware that they're committing crimes and still at the same time be good people and love their their wives and their kids and pet their dogs. And so people at the very basic level judge their husbands and their fathers and their sons and their wives and their daughters on so whether or not they're actually on a scale of, you know, like they're 60% good and that they, they do good things. And so that's all right. And if they went off to Vietnam and they committed some more crimes, well, that, you know, basically, if you got to know the guy, you'd find that he's really a nice guy underneath it all. That's what they tell me. And that's what I mean, you know, and, and that I'm the one that's an elitist for saying that they've been propagandized. So you can't argue these things with people because yeah. the truth is that all individuals are a mix of good and bad. And if they're doing bad to people that you can't relate to, and you call them communists, and you say, well, they have evil in their heart against us, then that is very evil, easily rationalized as Burns and Novik proved yeah. by making American soldiers into ultimately the victims of their own aggression. And even they were bad things to do, they weren't responsible because they were propagandized into doing them. And they're actually really good people. Okay. How can you defeat that argument? Well, you can't. Okay. And it, it's that argument is what is at the basis of every detective show that you see on TV. You know, I mean, yeah, sure, they do some bad things once in a while, but it's for the overall good, and it's for your protection. That's yeah. what the military is, too. And, and it doesn't matter how accurately you analyze what goes on behind the scenes. People are not going to read those books. They are not going to engage in that analysis. They're not going to engage in picking up every stitch of their own psychology and reorganizing their own self-concepts in order to to understand something more truthful and accurate about the world to make the world a more beautiful, wonderful place because they're happy in their families and they basically like these guys. And it doesn't matter that they're carrying automatic weapons into the the Michigan State House. You know, if you got to know them, you'd find out that they're really good guys and they would help you out if you needed $10. Yeah. So that's the world we live in. Wow. And people are just not going to go expend the energy that it takes to tear their own understanding of the world apart and reconstruct it. Wow. All right. A couple of things. Just one final thing on the Burns series. 
in a sense, it wouldn't matter how much truth he put in the middle of that series. It starts with a statement that I think you mentioned, I'm paraphrasing, something like the Vietnam War was good people with good intentions or something like that. And then at the very end, they don't make any reference to the fact that, as you've said again in your interviews, the, the Phoenix program, that idea, the, the counterterrorism, the cyborg idea, has been carried on and was carried on through the 80s. And they didn't mention, obviously, Burns. We know he wasn't going to do this, but he didn't mention anything about how Iraq, essentially, they did almost the same thing, which was to go go into a country you know, they didn't speak the language, they didn't understand the terrain. From a mainstream point of view, you know, a viewer should really be looking at that and thinking, well, yeah, that was a good 18 hours, but, like, what did we learn? Like, we went to Iraq, etc. So can I ask you another question? Um, when you're talking about these CIA guys and... Uh, you told a funny funny story. You went to a guy's house and he gave you tea and biscuits and he was a really nice guy. What people don't really understand, how can someone be a nice guy and then do the kind of things that you put in, in the Phoenix Program book? What's the mentality sure. of a person? Go on, tell me. The essence of Phoenix Program was to eliminate the communist cadres who were running the, the revolution in, the, in South Vietnam and... Um, in the process, the CIA organized the South Vietnamese Army. And again, the, the military officers from the United States who went to South Vietnam rarely stayed more than six months or a year. A lot of them did not speak Vietnamese, and they had to deal with their counterparts in the South Vietnamese Army through translators who were there year after year after year. Mm. And the uh, same thing with the CIA. CIA officers organized the South Vietnamese police forces, including their FBI. The South Vietnamese FBI, which was called the Special Branch, was entirely funded by the CIA. They actually created this organization, and they paid everybody's salary, and they bought all their equipment for them and um, put them in place, built interrogation centers for them. In every province, which was like a state in South Vietnam, the CIA built an interrogation center, which was a secret and they staffed it with these FBI guys and directed them against the communist insurgents. And they organized every military, police, and intelligence branch of the government, the Americans did, through interpreters, and focused them on what was supposedly between 75,000 and 100,000 communist cadres who were operating at every level in South Vietnam and had a base a secret base in Cambodia, and which went back directly to Hanoi, you know, and, and orders would supposedly come down from Hanoi to this, this secret base in Cambodia and then be passed along to the cadres. And from the time that it was instituted in 1967 until the, time, the end of the Vietnam War, the Phoenix program was tried to identify, capture, kill, every one of these communist cadres. And every time they killed a cadre, if they actually was an actual cadre, somebody else took his place. So this this, this figure of 75,000 or 100,000 never changed. It wasn't like you were just one day going to kill off all the cadres and the, and the revolution was going to end because this revolution had popular support. And the way that the CIA and the United States tried to destroyed the support for the insurrection was by killing off the people who led the insurrection because there was no way that they could 
changed the minds of the rural people who did not like the fact that Americans were in their country, running their country. The Vietnamese were very nationalistic people, and they'd had it with mm. the French, and they'd had it with the Chinese before the French, and they wanted to run their own country. So the United States could never overcome that difficulty. So it resorted to the Phoenix program and this bureaucratic system of just killing everybody off who might be able to speak up and organize against them. But it was it was doomed to fail. But again, if Ken Burns has spent, you know, an hour or two episode uh, delving into the, the organization and operations of the Phoenix program, it would have revealed the dark side of the American psyche. The CIA, in psychological terms, is a projection of the dark side of the American psyche, the part that has to be kept secret. It mm-hmm. covers its deeds, its evil deeds. It pretends that they're, they're doing good deeds for people. The Phoenix program would work by saying, we're bringing security to your village. We're going to make you more secure. We're going to help you grow better rice. We're going to give you a right to vote in the National Assembly. We're going to give you control over your village medical services that, you know, we're going to immunize you from diseases. And all you have to do is become an anti-communist. And all these things will be yours. And if you don't help us to identify the communist cadres in your village, then we'll consider you a supporter of the revolution. And so within a matter of minutes, the Phoenix program went from actually being this operation that was bureaucratized and focusing specifically on these 7,500,000 cadres to a blanket method of population control by visiting terror on anybody, and we're talking millions of people, who could even be said in any way mm-hmm. to be supporting the insurgency. Now they became Viet Cong sympathizers, and now they were targeted. Uh, a Vietnamese man wrote a book recently, about 10 years ago, which got a Pulitzer Prize, called The Sympathizer, which gets into all these things and what, it's, what it was like to be a Vietnamese who was ostensibly supporting American occupation of his own country and what it means to have supported the Americans and at the same time to be sympathizing with the the nationalist cause of the Vietnamese. Even though the statistics of Phoenix say it only killed maybe 20,000 people, in reality it killed hundreds of thousands of people. They just weren't the people on the list. You know, they were just innocent bystanders. And it was a, it was a way of Population control, terrorizing the population into turning against the revolution and supporting the, the you know, uh, public government. It's a method of pacification which was built on the colonial practices of the French and the British and the Dutch before the Americans even got there. These were practices that colonizers had used to pacify colonial countries for hundreds of years, by the, and it's nothing new. I told you, my father-in-law was was born in Liverpool in 1911. Yeah. And he, grew up, he grew up in Ireland on the border, and um, he remembered the British occupation. He called them the goddamn black and tans. You know, he was an Irish kid, and then they hated the the, the black and tans, the English who were there and were uh, had colonized Ireland and were trying to hold on during the Irish Civil War. And um, when I told my father-in-law about the Phoenix program, he said, oh, yeah, well, that's what the Brits did here in Ireland. The same thing. 
And it really is. You know, they were pretending to go after the leaders of the IRA when actually they were visiting terror on any Irish person who supported the IRA. And and they would be able to say to English people back home, you know, we love the Irish and they're not bad people. We're just going after their leadership. But it's this control of the information. And the disguising of actual intentions and purposes and this idea of, of sophisticated psychological warfare, which is not only directed against the people that the, the colonizer is colonizing, but against the people that support colonial practices back home. And essentially, this is, a, you know, just to sum it up, the message of communism is that workers at home are treated no different by the industrialists and the people who run the economy than the people that are being colonized overseas. And until yeah. workers in their own homeland start to see through the propaganda and organize themselves to more equitably distribute power and wealth in your own home country, you'll sure. never actually be able to stop the oppressive colonial practices of the people who run your country. And those ideas are antithetical to Americans. And for 250 years, they've been told the exact opposite, and that's what they believe. And that's why Ken Burns can get 95% support for his documentary, which is a completely revisionist and falsifies the entire Vietnam War. And that's what what anybody who, who is trying to be honest is facing. And that's what anybody who's looking for an accurate analysis is facing anywhere around the world. The problem yeah, yeah. works, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. it's gotten so out of hand. I agree with you that power and propaganda, I mean, those things have not really changed. They've just perhaps refined the methods. But could we just go back to the CIA? You said that you've met lots of agents. Did you detect any level of psychopathy among them? And my question was, otherwise, how could they do these some of the things that you put in your Phoenix book? Because... Some of the stuff, I couldn't even repeat it, some of the stuff they did, both the Vietnamese and the CIA. What's the psychology there? Do do you think the CIA guys you talked to, did they believe in the program or did they know what was happening? Well, you know, there's a range. Mm. You know, there were actually communists in the original CIA, but during the McCarthy era, they got weeded out. You know, there there was a very broad spectrum of people in the OSS. But essentially... The CIA is a military organization, and this is what you have to understand about the CIA, and it's the same thing about the military in the United States. There's an officer class, and there are people who salute and say, yes, I'm going to do what you tell me to do. And within the CIA, just as within the United States, the quality that is most uh, revered and admired is blind obedience. And when an officer tells you to run up that hill, and attack that hill and kill the enemy forces on the top of that hill, it is your obligation as a soldier to do what he tells you. So, you know, people on the media talk about, oh, how Trump's authoritarian. Well, you know, America has been authoritarian since its conception, and then nothing represents that authoritarian streak in the United States more than the reverence of the civilian population for the military, which the CIA is really sort of just like a covert branch of it. And it operates the exact same way. You come in at a very low grade. You don't come in as a boss. And by showing that you're, you're willing to follow the doctrine and follow orders and that you're willing to adopt the ideology, 
which is mm. avid, you know, rapidly anti-communist, rapidly anti-Islam, racist, you know, all the things that are the essential to the image of what an unreal American is. Then you advance up, and, and you, when you get to the top of the military, or you get to the top of the CIA, or you get to the top of industry or politics, the only way you get to the top is by being able to adhere to the propaganda and the ideology, and to actually prove that you believe it. Otherwise, you don't get a security clearance to look mm. at the intelligence. The military and the CIA spend more money controlling their own workforces than they spend on weaponry. Yeah. They have to control what their own people believe, and that's where they focus their energy, and that's why the military is able to actually march out onto football fields, lots of privates and corporals and sergeants in their camo fatigues and have jets fly overhead, and to mm. how American civilians believe that this is what the military is. They're not m- marching out generals and colonels who are driven around in chauffeured limousines and run battleships and aircraft couriers and command silos in the United States, which are packed with intercontinental ballistic missiles, which which are armed with nuclear weapons and which are aimed at Moscow and Peking. These are not the people that they're marching out, you know, on Sunday. And the people, American citizens, who support the, the military are worshiping these young young men and women who, who are part of this, you know, the enlisted ranks, the sacrificial lambs who go off and die in Vietnam or Afghanistan and, and Iraq and, and through the propaganda, the successful propaganda of the military and, and to a great extent the CIA, they've made the identity of the military these young people who are willing to sacrifice their lives. It's the success of the American military propaganda is that people believe this shit and to believe that they are actually have a a right that was bestowed upon them by Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and and Donald Trump to go around and conquer the world. And and that if you join the military as a young black man, Mm. you'll actually achieve some credibility and authenticity. In America, because you're part of this machine. And Mm. so, you know, a lot of people who are looking for economic advancement, if they're black or Latinos, join the military because they see that people revere the military without understanding really how it's organized or what they're being made to do. And then when they come home, and this is the, the most wonderful part about military propaganda, if they're suffering, you have to honor their suffering by telling them what they did was noble. Otherwise, you're betraying these young people who are willing to, to give their lives for you. So it's, it's it. what psychologists began, the, the original CIA, the OSS, yes. Office of Strategic Services, yeah. began to understand in World War II through dealing with guerrilla forces in Asia and all around the world that you could actually put people into what they called a double bind. And this is what women in America find themselves in all the time, where they're in a patriarchal society and they have to worship and honor their, their husbands and their brothers and their sons who went off to Vietnam and died or killed a lot of people or in World War II dropped a lot of bombs on Dresden. They don't think about the people that the bombs fell on. They think of their their fathers and their grandfathers and their husbands and their sons as heroes. 
And this is a double bind that they're in. If they want to have a successful marriage, if they want to get along with the men in their lives in America, they have to honor them mm. as heroes, as gun-toting, kill-the-Indians-to-protect-the-wagon-train kind of guys. And if yeah. they actually start to see through that myth, then they, they lose all the benefits of being a beloved wife and mother and daughter. Their lives fall apart. And mm. psychologists who were in the OSS realized this, that they could put all American citizens, whether they're men or women, black or white, can be put into this double bind. And mm. once they've committed to a particular path, they have no choice but to follow that path, no matter how disturbing it is to them, which is why we have so much gun violence in this country. Yeah. Because it's a projection of the understanding that everything we've been told is absolute bullshit, but there's no actual rational way for anybody in this country or for most colonial countries. There's no avenues for black people to organize and change and take control of their country. You can convict Derek Chauvin of killing a black man, but that doesn't affect any institutional change because the institutions are never going to change because they've been locked in place for 250 years, and people are in this double bind. If you stop yeah. biting the hand that feeds you, then you don't eat. Because everywhere you look, you can see the contradictions. Yeah. <laughs> and even though the bullshit propaganda piles up deeper and deeper, and, and there's more com- conspiracy theories to offer us a way out, mm-hmm. everybody still understands that they're in this double bind. They do to themselves what the CIA represents. And as long as you live in, you know, a Debordian spectacle where you can get whatever kind of consumer goods you want, then it's all worth it. And this is a society, the structure that's been built, and it's really a disturbingly sick psychological environment for anybody to be raised up in. Young kids in my neighborhood, their parents put signs out on the street, you know, since the COVID thing, and everybody's been locked together, you know, and... Some signs go up, um, Joe Biden's not my president, and I'm for Trump. And other signs mm. go up, say, Black Lives Matter. And little kids see this, and they wonder which was true. Society is structured with these tensions, and the tensions are there, and they're put in place by the people who understood all this, the psychologists, the, the anthropologists who did this to control countries overseas. They do the same thing here to control the population here at home. Oh sure, yeah, divide and conquer, yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that's why that's why I'm so interested in psychology sure. because it, sure, and that's you know, I mean, everything. So it's what the Romans did. The oh, Romans sorry. talked about dividing and conquering Gaul, you know, and they did. And it's what people in power do. And the only way out of it is through this, the decades of self-analysis and reconstruction that it takes, and then the binding together with other people who have have the same understanding of the world and then you know ultimately like the vietnamese did taking back your life from your colonizers and that's a tough thing to do and the higher up you get in our hierarchy the more committed people are to maintaining this double bind because it serves them very well wow amazing yeah i mean like i said earlier i agree with you i mean it's been these kind of systems have been in place and they've been very well refined just another thing about Vietnam. I don't know how many Vietnam films you've seen, but I've been binging a lot recently. 
So obviously the famous ones would be Full Metal Jacket, Platoon, Apocalypse Now. But I watched Coming Home, you know, the John Voight and Jane Fonda. I just watched The Quiet America with Michael Caine. Are there any that you're impressed by and you think maybe try and at least address the bigger picture of the war? The only movies, the only documentaries that at all get close to any kind of factual presentation of the Vietnam were made by Vietnamese in right. Vietnam, and they're not made by Americans. I mean, the guys that made these movies don't speak Vietnamese. You know, I mean, the, Vietnam was able to throw off its colonial chains because they were a different race, because they were a different religion. You know, they were not as subject to the propaganda, military propaganda as we are. They were less propagandized. They didn't. They don't have to go through the bullshit that an American has to do. They just looked around and saw people that looked like them and thought like them, and they saw the Americans as colonizers and enemies. So if you really want to understand the Vietnam War, which in Vietnam is called the American War. Yeah, of course. The Viet Cong were heroes to these people. I mean, they had been the people that fought against the French. They were the people Ho Chi Minh that fought against the Japanese. I mean, these were heroes that the Americans were going after. And they, they, the Americans put a Catholic puppet in charge of Vietnam for the first 10 years of itself, Vietnam's existence. The new NHU regime. All they did was persecute Buddhists until in 1963, a Buddhist monk immolated himself in yeah. way. And the whole Buddhist uprising began against the American occupation. You can't understand Vietnam unless you watch a film by a Vietnamese Buddhist that's made in Vietnam from the Vietnamese perspective. All this other American stuff is complete and total BS disinformation. And all it does is present Americans as victims of their own aggression. These films, just like Burns' documentary, only get made with the consent and collaboration of the military and the CIA. Hollywood's not producing communist propaganda. It's not producing movies that are made by Vietnamese or black Africans or Central Americans. You know, uh, those films do not get out because Hollywood and the TV industry are controlled by the military and and the CIA and the same people that control industry. So they just don't happen. I have seen... Vietnamese language movies that do portray the revolution for the revolutionaries point of view. You just got to go look. I was going to say, I've I've never heard of this. If you want to understand the Vietnam War, you got to go to Vietnam. Right, I understand. And you got to live there for a year. And you got to talk to veterans, you know, Vietnamese people to find out what was going on. There's no other way to understand what happened in Vietnam. I want to move on to the 70s because... it seems amazing now from the perspective of 50 years later that in the 70s you had, uh, well, in the 60s you had a Ramparts article talking about how the National Students Association received funding from the CIA. You had the church committee hearings on TV for a mainstream audience. And then you had Carl Bernstein's famous Rolling Stone piece, The CIA and the Media. Did it seem like things were a little more open in those days? It doesn't seem like that could happen now. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. Mm. And um, unfortunately, your analysis is absolutely right. It's become bureaucratized. And like I was saying, in Vietnam, the CIA had been around for 20 years. It was forming itself. 
they go to Vietnam and they start their kind of operations and they were still fumbling around until they could bureaucratize oppression. CIA is as yeah. opposed to a station in every country in the world. And it works hand in glove with the military. You know, the, the military has become this, you know, a police force, 800 bases around the world, yeah. which are designed to covertly create um, political environments in every country where these bases are that support American policy. And this is what the United States does now. And, and starting with the Phoenix program was the bureaucratization of its foreign policies to these ends. What was the point, do you think? I'm saying that in the 70s, things seemed a bit more open. When do you think they really refined it so they stopped showing the American public or the British public or anybody what was actually happening? Because these church committee hearings, I mean, they were on mainstream TV, weren't they? So well, this is it... the thing, you know, in, in, in 75, 65 to 75, Americans were actually anti-Vietnam War. They were in a state of a kind of a naivete that you had to live through to understand it. We were taking LSD, and we were breaking out of the McCarthy era of the 50s, and the civil rights movement was happening, and people could see the racists in the South persecuting black people. And then they could make a connection between between that civil rights movement here in the United States and what the Americans were doing to the Vietnamese, who were a different race of people and had different, you know, religion, and we could make that connection. And, and mm-hmm. so there was a, a chance in the late 60s and the early 70s That's it. for people to actually organize and try to understand the CIA and the military. But that moment came and went. Right. And it's 50 years later now. And the powers that be have really learned how to divide and conquer all these factional forces in the United States that were actually trying to make some positive change, and they've given uh, given blacks some help. But, you know, after 9-11, forget it. There was just no going back after 9-11, you know. And, and yeah. That was when the military and the CIA actually took over the whole country. And there's never, ever going to be any, nobody's ever going to be able to overcome that. Yeah, that was the point it changed, I think, yeah. On the subject of 9-11, I know you don't really like speculating on theories and things, but when 9-11 happened, what, what was your gut feeling? Do you think it was Al-Qaeda, if you don't mind speculating? Well, I'm tired, so that'll be my last, <laughs> my last thing. Uh, do the poetry. You know, 9-11 was predicted. Right, right. There was um, an organization called the Project for a New American Century, yeah, which was organized by a lot of people who were at the highest levels of um, conservative politics in the United States with strong connections to Israel and the United States military and the CIA. And they said that the only way they could ever actually recover from the Vietnam syndrome, which was this idea of not getting involved um, neocolonial processes, was to actually have a, a cataclysmic event here in the United States that was similar to Pearl Harbor. And, and lo and behold, six months to a year later, boom, 9-11. And that uh, resulted in the complete reorganization of the United States society and complete the, the, um, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, okay. which is the Phoenix program imported into the United States. And it's the exact same thing. And um, it's beginning a few years later of uh, military propaganda, actually uh, the military actually taking over the news media 
here in the United mm-hmm. States, which happened around 2005, 2006, 2007. It took over the military, took over the entire, um, all the, all the media networks and it became uh, impossible to broadcast like it had in the late sixties with Rampart or to conduct any kind of investigations in the military. It just doesn't happen anymore. And they have imposed military rule. After 9-11, we were under de facto martial law here in the mm-hmm. United States, and that has never changed. It's just now a blanket of propaganda. And so that's where we exist. And 9-11 changed all that. It brought the Phoenix program here to the United States, and it has resulted in Americans owning 400 million guns, and there are more guns than there are people. <laughs> and right, right. and America, beco- America becoming a totally militarized society. Uh, I really, you know, I mean, other than meeting people who have, you know, some really bizarre conspiracy theories, I don't see a whole lot of people actually trying to analyze the system, what's happening in the system. But that's the situation we're in. I want to be optimistic. I'd say there's always a few people, but it's going to be a minority. Doug, thanks for your time. Can we end on some poetry, if you don't mind? Okay, all poets want to write a poem to the spring. If you want to be a human being, you have to understand your creative processes, the feelings that you have within you to create, Mm -hmm. as opposed to destroy. You have to get, if you're a man, you have to get in touch with what psychologists call your anima the female part of yourself, which is the part that is the poetic part of yourself, which is not writing poems about the charge of the light brigade, but writing poems about creation and and beauty and uh, devoting your energies and your life to doing good things, okay? And um, instead of owning a gun and going to the shooting range, to learn how to identify flowers and to enjoy the soft and gentle things that the world has to offer and to devote your energies and reconstructing yourself to relate to those parts of life. And so poets have always been sort of the antithesis of the warrior. Mm. And I have always found that I could relate more to poets than to warriors, although I've spent (laughs) most of my adult life up to my ears with warriors. But poetry is a way to get in touch which I would recommend, you know, to any of your listeners or anybody who listens to me as a way to reconstruct yourself and to create yourself and to be a a person who's in contact with the gentler aspects of being alive. And um, there's a long poetic tradition involved with that. Mm -hmm. But I wrote a poem about the spring, and it's called My Last Spring. I shall not be in this my last spring, I swear on my soul, the same ancient thing. I'll start in the morning the usual way, bursting from the green-tipped hazel and red blossoms soaking the ground, escaping at the seams from the grasp of ghosts and recurring dreams, arising like a field of uncatalogued herbs with healing force a new gender of verbs that describe an utterly new action of me, apart from the past, painless, free. I shall not be in my last spring the same ancient withering thing, 
And though I start the usual way, I shall not sleep at end of day. That must be such an antidote to the stuff that you write about. Like you were saying, you must use it as a, yeah. you know, a way of keeping yourself sane almost after. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, know, you try to say in a few words a lot of things and uh, throw away your guns, get a shovel and some flower seeds and start planting flowers and lead a life that's dedicated to finding uh, the divine in nature. And not to abusing other people and hating other people. That's the only way out. Absolutely. Oh, lovely. All right. Well, listen, Doug, thank you very much. I'll let you know when this is okay, ready. Okay. Yeah. And you can put it on your website and, uh, just thanks for your time. And, uh, yeah, good luck with the books and douglasvalentine.com is your website. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Bye. fantastic and I hope you enjoyed it there is a point is there a point to all this let's find a point is there a point to my act I would say there is I have to the world is like a ride at an amusement park and when you choose to go on it you think it's real because that's how powerful our minds are and the ride goes up and down and round and round it has thrills and chills and it's very brightly colored and it's very loud and it's fun for a while. Some people have been on the ride for a long time and they begin to question, is this real or is this just a ride? And other people have remembered and they come back to us and they say, hey, don't worry, don't be afraid ever because this is just a ride and we kill those people. (laughs) Shut him up. We have a lot invested in this ride. Shut him up. Look at my furrows of worry. Look at my big bank account and my family. This has to be real. It's just a ride. But we always kill those good guys who try and tell us that. You ever notice that? And let the demons run amok? But it doesn't matter because it's just a ride. And we can change it anytime we want. It's only a choice. No effort, no work, no job, no savings of money. A choice right now between fear and love. The eyes of fear want you to put bigger locks on your door, buy guns. Close yourself off the eyes of love. Instead, see all of us as one. Here's what we can do to change the world right now to a better ride. Take all that money we spend on weapons and defense each year and instead spend it feeding, clothing, and educating the poor of the world, which it would many times over, not one human being excluded, and we can explore space together, both inner and outer, forever in peace. Thank you very much. You've been great. I hope you enjoyed it. London, you're fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much.